Men claim to want peace, but throughout history, man has a poor track record with little evidence to substantiate such claims. The Apostle Paul reiterated Isaiah's disappointing declaration in Romans 3, verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. Atheists conclude that peace cannot be found in religion, but insist that violence originates in religion. Of course, much evidence supports their contention. Consider the world's two largest religions, Christendom, with the world's 2.2 billion adherents, and Islam, with its 1.6 billion adherents. The Crusades implicate Roman Catholicism and Islam, embers from the centuries-old conflict between Catholics and Protestants still smolder in Ireland. Professing Christians bomb abortion facilities and slay so-called physicians who provide abortions. We constantly hear about the violence of Islamic terrorists over a wide swath of the globe devoting their brutalities to Allah. How is it that the world's two largest religions representing over half of the world's population could have such a dismal record when it comes to peace? Doesn't God want peace for his people? Don't blame God. Religious revisionists repackage religious teaching to support their own agenda. Progressive Muslims insist that Islam is really peaceful, but is perverted by extremists. Both the Quran and Muhammad's example point in the opposite direction. Christians also maintain that their religion is peaceful. Critics suggest the violence found frequently in the Old Testament refutes Christianity's ironic claim. This conclusion, of course, betrays a misunderstanding about the role of the Old Testament. Christians include the Old Testament when they speak of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, but Scripture teaches that the Old Testament and the New Testament must be approached differently. While the Old Testament is essential to a proper understanding of the New Testament, Romans 15, 4, it holds a different place for Christians than it does for Jews. For Christians, these writings are foundational, but not final. Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. The books of the Old Testament introduce the Christian the person in the world to God, creation, sin, the law, the covenant, sacrifice, forgiveness, the Messiah, and the church, but do not clearly present God's ultimate plan for his people. As Augustine, the fourth century Christian writer put it, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. God's command, thou shalt not kill, does not preclude God from using men as his agents of wrath against evil. God used foreign kings to punish his own people, including, as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, first century Jews by Vespasian under Roman Emperor Nero. Before the cross, the welfare of God's people, we need to remember and understand, was limited to a single nation. Israel, the ability to survive 
and to thrive as a nation and to preserve the messianic line required that Israel defeat the surrounding pagan nations with military might. God commanded to wipe out his people to wipe out the Canaanites. This command seemed rather severe until you read Leviticus 20 verse Leviticus 18 verse 20 through 25 about the depths of depravity into which they descend homosexuality bestiality and devoting their children to the fires of idolatrous worship of Molech it was so bad God says that the land vomited them out the victories of these armies of course depended on Israel's faithfulness as a result of this system under the Old Testament some of Israel's greatest leaders were warriors like Joshua Samson and David we read in Samuel 1st Samuel 18 verse 7 so the women sang as they danced and said Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands Judaism was not a religion of peace the prophet alerts the Jews to an abrupt change in God's expectations of his covenant people in Jeremiah 31 verse 31 behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers the spirit elaborates further on the beauties of the new era of the Messiah of the Messiah in Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it many people shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore this prophecy points to the glorious unfolding of God's wisdom in the first century through the establishment of the church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost the prophet does not speak about universal peace among the earthly carnal nations of the earth but of the citizens of God's kingdom that permeate the kingdoms of the world this is only fitting for the subjects of the Prince of Peace all indicators point to a seismic shift among God's people towards violence did Jesus or other New Testament writers send a mixed message about the peaceable identity of Christianity either by their teachings or by their action have bellicose individuals groups and nations professing allegiance to Jesus merely place their own agenda before that which is clearly articulated by the Holy Spirit Jesus earliest teachings harmonize with the message of peace forecast by the Old Testament prophets the Sermon on the Mount pronounces no blessing over those who vanquish their enemies with 
physical violence. Instead, Jesus singles out the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers as the blessed ones. Before declaring in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The natural response would be retaliation, but no longer for God's people. This contrast to the spirit of the old law becomes even more pronounced as Jesus' sermon continues. In Matthew 5, verse 38 and 39, Jesus presents a startling plea for nonviolence, even in the face of direct physical mistreatment. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If ever there was a time to set aside the peaceful response, it would be in self-defense. Yet Jesus makes no such provision. Jesus doesn't just teach these truths. He lives them all the way to the cross. Jesus picks up on the same theme in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44, saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Must we maintain peace even toward our enemies? Jesus says, yes. Now, we can develop enemies from our poor choice of words or ill conduct. Or we can develop enemies because someone irrationally sets themselves against us. This is true of individuals, families, groups, and nations. Notice though, Jesus does not stop here. Nor does he anywhere else stop to qualify the type of enemies under consideration. So we must conclude all enemies are in view. If ever there is a circumstance in which physical violence would be justified, it would be against those who bully or torment us in some way. And yet Jesus says true disciples will react by loving them, blessing them, doing good to them and praying for them. The teaching of Jesus allows no wiggle room for violence. Obviously, when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he does not mean that we must have warm feelings of admiration and affection. This word love signals action, not feeling. William Evans writes in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, love, whether used of God or man, is an earnest an anxious desire for and an active and beneficent interest in the well-being of the one loved. Culture conditions us to strive for equity. We want fairness. We want people to treat us. We want to treat people the way they treat us. Jesus, however, do we get this? Jesus holds us, his disciples, to a higher standard. 
He says that in kindly responding to unworthy antagonists, we, we mirror God's magnanimity and generosity, that that he shows in this life toward the evil and the unjust. As we reflect on the breadth of the application of Jesus' teaching in our lives, as unreserved, uncompromising disciples, no challenge is greater than Jesus' rhetorical questions in, Ma in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Big deal. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus' revolutionary teachings demand extraordinary behavior. If we react to mi mistreatment and violence with anger, retaliation, and force, how are we as Christians any different from members of any other religion or no religion at all? So actually, Jesus teaches that we are not expected merely to respond in kind, but rather he says, whatever you want men to do to you, do you even so to them? It's not for us to make sure that justice is served. That's not the Christian's business. Instead, when abused and violated, we should pray. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For, Jesus says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Anyone want forgiveness? As Jesus brings his sermon to a close, he confronts the tendency of believers to offer lip service while hesitating to do the heavy lifting true discipleship requires. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There's no mystery here. Jesus expects his followers to be peacemakers not warmongers. No amount of preaching, praying, giving, assembling, or doing good deeds of one's own choosing can compensate for a willful setting aside of Jesus' teaching. We must do the Father's will. The only way, the only way to accept and apply Jesus' teachings on peace in every circumstance is to fully embrace the fact, yes, that we are strangers and pilgrims, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Do we get that? When we prize the extent and duration of our heavenly citizenship, Philippians 3.20, under Jesus, who is truly our commander-in-chief, it will trump all other obligations and allegiances, while at the same time disposing of all the what-ifs that might otherwise confuse us. May God's people fully embrace their God-given responsibility under all circumstances to reject the ministry of retaliation and to promote the ministry of reconciliation.